sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell this salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be a feared above all gods. So the topic uh, this morning is um, Bible translation in the local church. And what I'd like to do is take you through a couple different topics and then hopefully there'll be some time at the end for questions. If not, um, have lunch with me. I don't want you to leave scratching your head wondering, what was that guy saying, okay? So the, the, I'll start off with the state of Bible translation. I'll try to give you a big picture of just generally what's happening in Bible translation. And then look at some challenges to Bible translation. And then move to the role of the local church. Hopefully that part will encourage you. For some of you, you it might be a review. It's like, yeah, that's obvious. That's what the local church does. But as a missionary on the field, it's always encouraging for me when I was on the field and being back to review this because the church is really the seedbed. It's where everything starts in missions, even in something as technical as Bible translation. And then the importance of translation, just to reiterate and run that point home, because um, it's so obvious to me, yet it's so um, there's so much need and so much more needs to be done in that area. So, And then finally, I'll touch on um, a new initiative here at the Master's Seminary the Tyndale Center for Bible Translation, the courses we're offering. So that's where we're going, but I don't want it to be too theoretical and black and white on the screen. So we'll start in South Sudan with the Baka. Now, last December, you were getting ready for Christmas. You know, think back four months, you know, preparing, buying gifts, making cookies, if you did what we did at home. Well, in, in South Sudan, the Baka, yeah, they were thinking of Christmas, I'm sure, but they had a bigger celebration. They were celebrating the arrival of the New Testament and Genesis. It was the product of 35 years of work. Um, and so on December 3rd, um, thousands of Baka came together in Maradi, and they celebrated the arrival of their New Testament and Genesis. So there's a guy with some boxes. If you've ever been overseas and had a Bible arrive. They always look like that. I don't know why. I think it's because they were printed in South Korea. And so um, they always have the name on the side and the language and the portion of scripture. So now what is really neat is I got a chance to have an re watch an interview with Reverend Bennett Marona. Now he was the backbone of the translation. 33 years ago, the main guy they wanted to translate was called away to do other things. He was so talented, talented the church said, we want him to do these other things. And so the, the first missionary couple who went had to go with the second guy, um, Bennett. Well, it turns out that he was um, the one that the Lord raised up to, watch, to run the ball all the way down the field and across the goal line. So for 33 years, and... And then the missionary couple that joined him, they went home on their first furlough in 1985, and civil war broke out in South Sudan. So Bennett and his family and thousands ran and walked and ran and walked for seven days to get to Congo, and they survived. And the next missionary camp couple came and joined them in Congo in the refugee camp and continued the work. And that couple stayed with them for about 10 years and then they had health problems, and they went back. And so Bennett then led the, the team from then on, from 2001 until 2017. 
And they asked him, why did you do this? Why give 33 years of your life to this? And he said, I want my people to know God and to know his voice. And then he went on and said, I want them to have a root so they will stand. And I was thinking, I would never say that for myself, but that's really biblical, isn't it? Maybe he's thinking of Psalm 1. I would say give them a foundation to build on, right? That's just another image, right, a building. But he's thinking of the plant. You know, you need a root in God's word to grow. So um, it's just fascinating. And the other people on his team were interviewed. Why did you translate? And, and one person said, well, it's to fulfill the Great Commission. And another person said, well, what, it's the key to the salvation for our people. And another person said, well, the pastors get up and they read it in English, but they, they can't actually explain it. And I've been there. I've learned, uh, if you've ever learned another language, you know, you can read it. And it sounds good. Then they ask you what it meant. And you're like, uh, well, it just says this. <laughs> so the pastors could read in English, but they couldn't actually preach and explain it. But so the translator said, it's great because the baka get up, the pastors get up, and they read it in baka, and everyone understands. And then they can expound on the word because they actually understand it. So, so there's a lot of celebration there with the baka. And so that's, I want to make, I'm going to put it in black. It's, the rest of my slides are black and white. These are only color ones. Because I want you to see the, that this is a real live issue. Thousands of groups need God's word. And when they get it, they celebrate. So what is the state of Bible translation? So more and more languages around the world have more and more scripture. It's exciting to see what the Lord's doing. Translators have more and more tools, quality tools. Um, it's incredible what's happened the last 30 years. And scriptures are being distributed in, in incredible ways um, today, things that weren't even known of 10 years ago. So let's talk about the languages of the world. How many languages are there, and how many of them have a complete Bible? I was talking to a group of college students on Sunday. A guy said, 5,000 languages and 2,000 have complete Bibles. I thought, well, that's a good, good, good try. Can, can you do better on that? How many languages in the world? Any linguists here? Give me a number. Okay, good, good. 7,000. 7,000 languages, you know, plus or minus 100. Um, how many have a Bible, a complete Bible? 1,200. Good. So 670. 670 languages, um, 7,670 have a complete Bible. 1,521 have a New Testament. So add the Baca in there and many other languages. They have a New Testament or maybe New Testament in portions. And then um, 2,584 languages, there's work in progress. So around the world, there, there's, you know, 2,580 2,584 different projects, translation groups working towards um, completing a portion of scripture, like a New Testament. There's more groups than that, because think of the Baca. Are they going to stop? Is Pastor Bennett going to stop? No, he's got the Old Testament. I'm sure he's thinking, okay, now I've got to do Exodus. So there's more translation projects than 2,584. And then, um, so that's 4,775 languages with some scripture. 
And then just the last group, 1,671 languages have no work at all. So um, I don't know if you know Smedley Yates and Scott Maxwell. They were out here last year. They're, they're leading up a group called Finisterre Vision. They've picked one mountain range in Papua New Guinea, just one. It has 100 languages. And there's a man at one village on that mountain range who wrote them a letter. Please come to our village and bring us the gospel and translate the word for us. So he's in that group, 1,671. He's still um, waiting. So how long does it take to translate a Bible? The good news is the number's going down. Um, what would you say? Um, ten years. That's, that's good. I'm sure you could do it in ten years. <laughs> but um, it's a little bit longer than that. But the number's going down. Let me give you the whole picture here. So a century ago, it took, on average, 38 years. There's a, a Professor Gerner who wrote an article. He went through and he took the average of every translation project. And so that was the average he came up with. And 60 years for a Bible. So you can see a century ago it was quite something to finish a Bible for a group of people. Since 1915, it's gotten, it's, uh, translators can do it a little more quickly, 23 years for a New Testament, 46 for a whole Bible. But today, it's gone down to 11 years for a New Testament. It's probably even, you can do it more quickly even now, more than 11, maybe 9 or 10 years. And then a full Bible, 16 years. So why is the speed increasing? Why is this number dropping? Well, there's just incredible tools available now, just computer technology. 1989, I go to a village in Chad. I sit down with a missionary couple, and um, they'd gotten their first laptop. So I felt really good because I could explain to them how the floppy drives work and, and do things for them. <laughs> and that was such an advance. But even they were checking parallel passages by hand. One person read it in Mark. The other person checked it in Matthew. Now we have programs like Paratext that do all of that for you. You don't have to check parallel passages by hand. You don't even, it tells you to check the parallel passages. So, and then Translator's Workplace, that's another, um, that's essentially a, a library for translators that's been put together by Wycliffe Bible Translators and SIL. Paratext is by the United Bible Society. So these tools are out there. They just speed up the process of translating. And then what's really incredible is, I mean, when I went to Chad in 1989, they would send things to North Korea and wait for them to come back. They would send versions that they translated to Nairobi, Kenya, and wait for them to come back. And then, you know, then you'd wait a year or two for your scriptures to arrive. Now that, yes, you still have to wait for the actual Bible to arrive, but you can do so much more. Um, for example, the whole movement of putting scriptures on apps. Um, you know, for us, it's just sort of a, a neat, convenient thing, right? But imagine you are, um, if you're a Kirangi speaker um, and you live in Berlin where you're studying, how do you get a Kirangi Bible from your brother in, in Kenya? I mean, it just doesn't happen, right? 
Um, but nowadays, you can actually just get the Kirangi app and um, tell your brother you have it, and you can play and listen to Genesis 3, 1, That's Genesis 3.1 in Kirangi. And so I was uh, talking to a translator who's working in Tibetan, and he said that they were fearful they'd be um, forced to leave Tibet about uh, 15 years ago. And so they reluctantly put all their stuff on the web. You know, it's just this sort of afterthought. Um, but then they realized, no, this is, a, this is the new cutting edge. And now they have not only a website but an app. And so people are downloading the Tibetan Bible, reading it, and then they share it with people. That's, the, that's how you evangelize there. You go and you share the app with someone instead of giving them an actual Bible because it's much safer to give someone an app. So it's totally changing the way translation work is done and how the scriptures are disseminated once they're translated. So what are the challenges to Bible translation? I'll mention... Um, just a few. The first is um, just the separation of translating God's word from gospel ministry. I think at the level of the translator's heart and also in terms of the organization and in terms of who you partner with, this is always a challenge. But the translator needs to um, not simply be someone who can exegete and you know, create a dictionary and study the, the language, the grammar of one language and the other. Ultimately and fundamentally, the translator is still a, a servant of the Lord and a messenger of the gospel. So the, you can't pull those two apart. But there's a tension there because um, so much of translation is very technical, research-oriented. And then there are organizations that really emphasize the research part of it. And so it's easy to start moving down that route. And the, we'll talk about the role of the church, but I think part of the role of the church is to keep the translator close to the word. Um, but it's easy to start moving down that route. And then you start thinking of the people you're translating for as the, the consultants and experts who give you advice, and the churches are your funders for your research project. And you start to move down this path of being um, more and more concerned about the academic side then the other extreme is translation is publishing. So there are a lot of groups who do translation, and it's, it's essentially as a publishing ministry. So the United Bible Societies, for example, are the best example. Um, they produce excellent resources. Um, the Paratext program, they produce that. But their whole model is publication, translation as a publication ministry. There, there's no accountability to the church. The church is their customer, right? They're producing things for you to buy. And if you buy them, then they can continue to exist. And so there's no accountability to the local church. And so um, these are two forces that are sort of weighing in on the translation ministry. So um, if I'm being a little too vague, I'll talk to you more about it later. <laughs> but I, I see a lot of faces like I'm not quite getting what you're saying. So. But ask me about this later. But um, when you start translating, these are two tensions that pull on you. Um, and you need to stay right in the middle, um, recognizing what you're doing as gospel ministry accountable to the church. 
So let's let's talk about the local church. Um, if you're a if you're a translator, scholar, researcher, you know the the local church is far from your heart, and you're just it's a source of funding. If you're the publisher, the church is just your consumer. You know they're just buying your products. But actually, the local church is the driving force. It should be the driving force behind translation work because it's the driving force behind the whole missionary endeavor. It's the driving force behind the gospel. So um, just what is the role of the church? Well, as I say there, you know, just the whole process of salvation, growth in Christ, understanding evangelism, missions, that's all what happens in the church, right? That should be what's happening in the local church. As um, people are growing in their faith, they're becoming more involved in ministry and service. They're using and discovering their gifts and using their gifts, um, understanding evangelism, seeing the part that their church has in taking the gospel to the nations. And then that should lead ultimately to your church sending people out, right? And then your church is sending, supporting, and shepherding your missionaries and your Bible translators. And this is where I think things can break down a little bit because the translator comes back with his advanced degrees and knowledge of various languages, and they can sound really impressive, even a little intimidating, and you just give them room because they're obviously doing a great thing, and you can't really dig deep into what they're doing because it's in another language, another culture, another part of the world. So, but, to really, but you can shepherd anyone regardless of ha what their academic degrees are. And uh, translators especially need that shepherding and that encouragement and those questions to um, learn more about their ministry and get alongside them in their ministry. I was telling uh, one missionary, um, too many churches view their missionary who's visiting as a guest speaker. They're not a guest speaker. You should see them as a long lost, you know, member who's come home. You know, they're, they're a, a long lost family member, you know, if they're a guest speaker, what are they? You just need to get them a place to stay, make sure they're fed, make sure they get on the road. They have some money for gas. And it's over, right? It's next guest speaker. No, these are, these are people that you invest in and you minister to them. And then, um, then it should continue on. You know, it's easy when the translator's done and he comes back. Think about the baka. When, when, the, translator, when the missionaries came home from the baka, Okay, our church, that's okay. We need to decide who else to support. But what about that church there? You should think we still have an investment. We still have a relationship with that church that we need to, to strengthen. Um, we need to see that the, those men that did that translation, if they're, they're continuing to get trained, are they effectively pastoring the new church? Are, do they have a way to train up people? Are they using their scriptures wisely? Um, that's a really major issue. Because at that dedication, everyone runs forward. They rush forward. They buy their copy. They take it home, and they don't know what to do with it because they've never had a scriptures before. So they need we, – we spend time teaching people how to study the Bible, right? And we are all literate, right? I went to a Bible study in Chad years ago with the Musay. They just received their New Testament. And the Bible study was like a literacy class. I mean, they were all trying to read it and laughing at each other, and um, it, it wasn't like deep theology. They were just learning to read. Um, and then the women, they would meet, and there were like 50 women who had come, and they were reading really well. 
So the men were really embarrassed to come to Bible class because <laughs> it's really terrible when you get up in church. You're the elder, and you're supposed to read your New, New Testament, and you can barely do it. And then the women get up, and they just read like they've been reading their whole life. So these are practical areas where you can encourage the church because the worst thing you want is for the leadership of the church to just say, this New Testament, we don't really need it. It's for women. See how well they read it? It's for women. Now, then, then your whole investment is undercut. So, so there's a partnership that should continue on with, with these churches um, once they receive the scripture. So just some thoughts about the importance of translation. I mean, you know, each of our churches, you know, we have our traditions. We have certain things, certain ministries we've invested in over the years. One church will invest a lot in translation. Another church, it's pastoral training. Another church, it's unreached groups. Another church, it's a specific country. Um, so if you're coming from a church that doesn't support any Bible translation, why should you? Well, first off, it's part of fulfilling the Great Commission of taking the gospel message to the world. To, uh, think about a people like the Baca. How do you take the gospel message to them um, without translating it? And then Christ said to teach all that I've commanded you. So it can't be just a general message about the gospel. It can't be you know just a general presentation of the gospel, then we stop there. They'll do everything else in another language. No, I mean, to, to teach all that Jesus commanded means... You need to translate all that he commanded. You need it, and why stop there? Just translate the whole gospel, right? And then all four of them, right? Because and then they need the rest of it to grow in their faith. So you need to translate the scriptures, and then to equip the church to grow in in their faith, to preach, to teach, to evangelize subsequent generations. All of that requires the gospel. I mean, it requires the scriptures in their language. How can they devote themselves to regular reading of the word when they don't have it? And then how can they teach their children the faith um, when they, we don't, they don't have the scriptures to teach from? And then finally, how are they going to take the gospel to the group next door? Are they going to go next door and preach to them? In, are the Baca going to go to the group next door and preach to them in Baca and tell them they have to use the Baca Bible? Well, then that just repeats what happened with the Baca when the the Zande came to them and said, you have to use the Zande Bible, which they didn't know Zande, but you know, the Zande brought the gospel, so they respected the Zande, but they still realized we don't understand. And this is the history of missions, right? Why was the Bible translated into Latin? Because the Latin speakers said, we don't understand Greek. We need the Bible in Latin. Okay, so they translated, Jerome translated into Latin, and then what did the Latin-speaking church say? Um, you don't need it in your language. You need it in our language. So there's this inertia, this, um, this um, contentment. You know, if it's good enough for me, it's good enough for you, which you have to push past. And every group that wants the scripture should have it. So, and then that sets them up to take the gospel effectively to the next group. So that leads then to what we're doing at the seminary. Um, we're starting the Tyndale Center for Bible Translation. I should tell you a little bit about Tyndale because um, I didn't know a lot about him, to be honest. Um, I knew he was one of those early translators. Um, but 
as I've gotten to know more about him, I realize this, this is what we want to produce. Right? This, is what it, this is the translator who's honoring to the Lord. So um, he was an English reformer, 1494, roughly. They think he was born. And he died in 1536. And um, his whole life, basically, was on the run. And he was trying to keep... Um, keep the authorities from finding him as he was secretly translating and publishing. So uh, not uh, there are a lot of questions about his life I'd like to know. When did you do this and why did you do that? But he was constantly on the run. Um, King Henry VIII had several agents looking for him around Europe, and he was moving from place to place in Europe. But during that time, after he fled England and he was working in Europe, he was able to publish the first English New Testament working from the Greek, published on a printing press in 1526. And it just, um, at least 3,000 copies, maybe 6,000, and they just sold, like, um, they just sold out. And the church in England started buying them as well because they were trying to burn them. And, and Tyndale was like, well, let's just use those funds to print more. So they just, just kept printing and printing and printing, and he basically fueled the English Reformation with his translation work. And he was a pastor, theologian, writer, who was promoting the, the Reformation truths. He was also a, an evangelist. Um, he would make time each week to go out and preach. Um, he first got in trouble with the authorities because he was preaching in the open air. He would go out and he would be preaching the gospel, preaching salvation by faith alone in Jesus Christ. And the authorities saw that, caught wind of it, and told him he needed to stop. And so that's started a process of him eventually leaving England and translating from the continent. And then he died in 1536. He was captured and um, then uh, died um, strangled because he was a priest. He had the privilege of being strangled uh, before he was burned instead of being burned alive. But what a fascinating thing that I didn't realize is I use his translation every day because his translation essentially became... Um, well, there were several revisions and several new Bibles that came out, including the King James Version, 1611, which is 80%. The New Testament, the King James Version New Testament, is 80% William Tyndale's New Testament. Why? You can't improve on it. There's only so many ways you can translate that verse correctly. And he did it so masterfully, they couldn't improve on it. So in the beginning, well, I won't, I sh okay. I won't quote too many verses. I think you got the point. So, yeah. So, when we looked at his life, the thought was this is the kind of translator that we want to train up. So, that's what we're doing now with the Tyndale Center. Our three main objectives train up a new generation of pastor translators. Remember, I talked earlier about how the translator can, can veer off into being a scholar without a, a heart for the church and the gospel? Or he can veer off into, you know, just publishing, and it's about books. So we want the pastor translator who's keeping that right path down the middle. And also raise awareness of the great need for translation. And finally, to provide resources for pastors and translators. So um, it, it's just, it's an incredible privilege to teach at the seminary. And as I'm teaching and working through topics, we're turning those into papers and resources that we're going to put on our website. So the website just went up. So there's nothing in terms of resources yet. But 
but I'm working on um, some things that, Lord willing, will go up. So, um, well, I'll stop there and um, leave a little time for questions, if you have some questions. Uh, can you address for us some of the general issues regarding, like, contextualization and translation of God's name and things like that? Oh, yes. Yeah, the biggest... Um, Okay, the question was about the translation of God's name. And um, the biggest controversy that isn't really over is trans the translation of the Son of God. Um, you may have heard it was these um, translation issues. Usually translation issues don't make the front line, you know, headline news, right? Um, but a few years ago, the, the issue of how to translate Son of God did. And it's because there was a over roughly a maybe a 15-year period, there was a slow movement in translators working with Muslim groups. Um, the idea that, you know, your translation, I mean, the ultimate goal, this is the idea, the ultimate goal of my translation is to bring people to Christ, okay? And what's the point of a translation that no one will read? So if I tinker with it just a little bit for the sake of that person's salvation, it's okay, right? I mean, because Son of God and, oh, there's another passage where it says Beloved of God, and those are really close concepts. So I'll just replace Son of God with Beloved of God. Um, or Son of God is considered, um, you know, in the Muslim context, that's considered blasphemous. So depending on where you are in the Muslim world, that will get a, a, a sneer on the person's face to the person walking away um, there are even parts of the Muslim world where Muslims won't even touch the Bible and you have to turn the page for them. But wherever you are in that spectrum, you know, someone reading that is going to immediately trigger, you know, it might end your conversation. Like the, the, the man I was reading the Bible with one day, he got upset when we got to that point. And um, we talked about it a little bit, and he agreed to keep going. And I was like, thank you, Lord. Okay, so we just keep going. But some people won't. They'll just stop there. Um, so the desire, that desire, that evangelistic desire um, sort of overran the desire for the truth of God's word and, and the willingness to be offensive with the gospel. And so there was a whole group that were proposing that you can replace son of God with an equivalent term. Um, that now, the problem is, what's the equivalent term? <laughs> And is it really equivalent? You know, it's not an equivalent term. It's just a similar term that doesn't convey what um, the term son is supposed to convey. And others said, well, let's just put it in a footnote. Okay, we'll put son of God in the footnote. And in the text, we'll say beloved of God or a comparable term. Um, and, but, you know, the obvious response is the footnote is not in the inspired word of God. The footnote is to help you understand the inspired word of God. Even Muslims will have in their Bibles, you know, a box-off area that is the Quran, and below it there are notes, but they know that that's different. So you're not, that's not really advancing your point. So unfortunately, this group, see, this is where the local church comes in, because you can have a group of people working quietly together, and this is how Muslim work often goes. You need to be quiet about your work, because people's lives could be at stake. So they're quietly working together, quietly convincing themselves that this actually makes sense, and then quietly agreeing that this is what they're going to do, and then quietly publishing all of these portions. 
with um, Son of God replaced by other expressions like the Messiah of God or the Beloved of God. And then, um, I've forgotten exactly what year it was, maybe 2007, um, it started to leak out. Because there was actually a, a group of translators who said, no, we don't like this. Um, this is not honoring to God and his word. And there was the majority that said, yeah, it's okay. It's okay, because ultimately we're about saving souls, and this is going to save more souls. So when it came out, um, that's when there was a response from the just the general Christian community in the U.S. saying, why are we supporting this? And I think that was good in a sense because Wycliffe Bible Translators was one of the groups that um, at first said, well, we're the specialists here, so just, you know, respect us. Respect what we say. And I was like, I was with Wycliffe Bible Translators at the time, and I, they, they gave us, they gave everyone in Wycliffe an email to write in if you had a question or comment. So I wrote up my... <laughs> comment and sent it off to the administration. Um, meanwhile, they're saying in public, well, at Wycliffe, well, this is what you're supposed to do. This is how you're, it's okay. You know, it's okay because um, this is the right way to translate. And um, well, thank the Lord, they, there was such a backlash from the churches that they decided to put a moratorium on this. And then they eventually changed their view and agreed with the, that no, this is not the way to translate. So Maybe that's too long of a story for your answer. But that's exactly why you need the local church. Because the, any translator, even me, when I'm translating in Cameroon, I'm accountable to someone. Um, I'm accountable to my local church. And I'm accountable to every person who's supporting and praying for me. So um, that, that accountability is important. And it's easy when you're a, a translator working in a remote part of a world in a language and culture that no one knows to just say to someone, this is the best way to do it. But you can, some cases, you should ask intelligent questions and try to just follow up a little bit. You know, it's, d yeah, I probably said enough. Okay, seems like you had a question. Okay, this new center, are you, we know that there are two, you know, basic styles on translation, <coughs> one the literal translation, one the dynamic translation. Which one are you going to pursue? I would say there's not two. Um, that's one thing I cover in my class. Um, there's a Greek word, lepton. It's the smallest currency. Um, the King James Version translated the mite, the widow's mite. So should you translate that? How would you translate that? You might say, well, let's translate it as the smallest coin we have, a penny. But it's not really a penny, is it? Well, it's translated as a small copper coin. That would describe it. And should we be consistent and always translate it the same, or can we use both of those? Well, um, if you look at your Bible, you'll find that it's translated both ways. Why? Because it needs to make sense. So when Jesus said you won't get out of prison until you pay the last small copper coin, right? Small copper coin? No, it doesn't work there. You won't get out of prison until you pay the last penny. Why did they translate it penny? Because you paid with pennies, right? Who goes to the store and pays with a small copper coin? What? We don't do that. It has to make sense. So small copper coin. But then the widow, she put in two small, uh, yeah, excuse me. You pay with the penny, so they translate it penny. Now what about the widow? She put in 
in the ESV or the NASB, two small copper coins. So there it's a historical event, and they're trying to describe what she put in there. So um, one thing I try to get the seminarians to see is that this black and white literal and dynamic is too simplistic. There's a, there's a whole range. And if you take any translation, take the NASB, um, you'll find verses where they're very close to the Hebrew or the Greek or the Aramaic, and you'll find verses where they've, they've, they were forced to add things or change things, or there's an idiom that doesn't, you know, kidney. Do I say kidney in English? No. So there's a spectrum there. And so that's why you have to be a very careful exegete and know your theology and, above all, fear God. You know, that this, I'm accountable to God for this. You know, I can't just say, I want to save these people, so I'm going to rush this. Or I'm going to save these people, so I'm going to change this term. So, but that's, you know, there, there are extremes, you know, like Young's literal translation. I always point that out because when people say, I want to be really literal, I say, great, go talk to Young and read his version. And you'll realize, well, yeah, well, I don't want to be that close. Um, or, um, and then, um, yeah, yeah, so that's just a short answer to a long topic. <laughs> so, yeah, any other questions? Yeah. How many languages are all <coughs> only? No written? Mm-hmm. I'd say. How do you overcome that? And then also, how many languages do you get involved with where the printed form of the language is not what's really spoken on the streets? Okay, most of the world's languages are primarily oral. So, um, and some parts of the world that's true more than other parts of the world. Uh, but in where we were in Africa, for example, um, the group we were with and the groups that I've um, worked with over there, primarily oral culture. But they're very eager to read and write. And so that's, that's sort of the entry point where you start to work with them. Um, but then your second question was where the way they write is different from... The way they speak is different than what is you would see written. Where, you know, like Konoya Greek, for example, mm-hmm. you just run into a lot of that situation where the classical language in print would not be the same as actually spoken by the people. Right. Okay, I see what you're saying. Right, because some language, some, in some cultures you have like an academic language. Um, that you learn at school, but then you have the real language you speak at home. Like in Germany, you might you might speak um, high German at school, but you go home and you speak low German or the German of your area. Um, yeah, that's that's a. Um, As a translator, how do you overcome that? I would I would first ask, what is the educational system, and what's the language of the church? And what's the language of the home? Because ideally, I mean, well, in America, we have an ideal situation. Home, church, school, government, it's all the same language, more or less. Um, you go to other parts of the world, then it gets complicated. You know, well, even in, in Jesus' time, language of the synagogue, you know, Hebrew, maybe some Aramaic, language of the market, the government, you know, Greek and Latin. So what you need to do is, um, well, for example, in Cameroon, I mean, the language of the home should ideally be the language of the church eventually. But then you get a problem because if 
what's the language of education? Because if you want to train pastors and you've got pastors from this whole region where you have 50 languages, what language do you train them all in? So there you have to work with the local churches and decide on which language. Because um, it may be too difficult to try to teach all of them in all those languages. So that's where, you know, very often seminaries are going to use the, the language of, the, of education in the country. So in Cameroon, the, the earliest missionaries were using Fufulde in the north. That was the broad language that everyone spoke, um, especially in the market, but not the language in the home or the, the language of your people. And then they switched over to French when the level of education became high enough in, um, in, in Cameroon. And so now pastors go and they, they can study to be a lay pastor in their language, but if they want to be a, a pastor, they have to study in French, which, I mean, idea, it's not the best system because there's a sort of a divide there between what people, pastors are getting in French and what the person in the pew is getting in their own language. But it's a difficult situation. You can't, um, you know, you can't provide all the education you would like at the seminary level, you know, at the church or the home level. So that's, yeah. We have one more? Oh, time's up. We should stop there. Okay. Okay, yeah, so one more. So uh, kind of following up on our talk, for language where they're probably Develop a written form um, because then you have some, you know, you can produce things that can be kept and used for, you know, decades. But then record it too. Um, do both. Yeah. Okay. Great. Thank you.